What's up, everybody? Welcome to Be More Well Backstage Pass. My name is Jeff St. Pierre, and this week I've got author Grady Hendrix joining me. One thing I picked back up on during the pandemic was my love for reading. And not just reading, but reading fiction. I had really let fiction go for so many years, but I am so happy that I've gotten back into it. I've been able to speak with a ton of great authors from Matt Haig, who was a guest last week, to Riley Sager and Lisa Gardner. Uh, But this week's guest really brought a new element to things. I connected with Grady Hendricks. He's the author of the best-selling book, The Final Girl Support Group. We talk more about the book in the conversation, but basically it's a new twist on the classic final girls from slasher movies that we know so well. Uh, He's such an interesting guy. This was hands down one of my favorite conversations in the last couple of years. If you don't know Grady's name, by the way, get ready to hear it a lot. I think he's got like three books being turned into movies or shows right now, including this one we're talking about today. But you'll find out more about that during our chat. Before we jump in, just a quick reminder to subscribe to Be More Well on whatever platform you're using so you'll be updated on all future episodes. I'd really appreciate that. Also, please feel free to leave a rating and review that helps people find the show that maybe haven't heard it before. And please feel free to look us up on social media. The show can be found on Instagram at Be More Well Podcast, and I'm on there too, at St. Pierre on Air. Hey, how you doing? Great. How are you doing, Grady? I'm good. I'm good. Do I sound okay? You sound fantastic. Oh, good. Oh, why, thank you. So do you. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I, I just happened to open my email and I was like, oh, Grady has joined the Zoom call. I guess we're going to jump into this. Let's do it. <laughs> well, if you still want to do it or, uh, a little later, that's fine. I just finished my previous one and I thought I'd log on just to make sure I didn't do anything dumb and mess it up. No, you, fix anything. You're, okay. you're all good. Actually, you know, it's funny is I, I, I always grab whatever time I can during these press calls. And sometimes I find with uh, fiction writers, there's only so much you can really talk about sometimes because you don't want to give away the book. You know, you want people to buy the book. You want them to be, and sometimes it's hard to talk about anything but the book. But after reading yours and learning more about you, I was like, I feel like we have a lot to talk about here. Oh, and and I like to talk. So, well, well, good. I, I want to start first with, uh, on your website, it says you are very good looking. I think very, very is how it's put. Um, I, I want, yes. they're not wrong. I want to say they're not wrong. Thank you. And actually, this is a filter that you can get for Zoom. It okay. tones me down to like, like, like a seven, like a solid seven. You know, if you see me without the filter, you will explode most likely. Yeah, it's just too much. The phone, phone cameras can't handle it. Too much. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. We're already off to a good start. Well, well, Grady, the final girl support group, I want to say there's plenty to talk about here, but I love the book because it punches you in the face right away. Like there's no, there, there isn't the same... Uh, like lead in where you're kind of like, okay, I got to get through the first like 30, 40 pages before I'm really grabbed by this story. Yours, the tension in the, in the very first support group at the very beginning, it just from there on, it never lets you go. Thanks. I really appreciate that because, you know, it's funny slasher movies, like which sort of gave me the template for this. They're really one long chase. And so I wanted this to be really breathless and really move. And one of the things I hate is like you're describing that feeling in a book where you're just tapping your foot, waiting for the gears to lock and things to go. I'm like, you know, let's just get into it. Let's get into it right away. I don't want the audience to be ahead of the book. I want the audience to be playing catch up. There was a point where, you know, at the beginning, there's a scene in one of the characters' apartments, and I stopped for a second when it was going on. I'm like, am I really only on, like, page 30 right now? How is this already happening? Yeah, man. Why waste time? Let's get into it. 
<laughs> and I started thinking too, I guess because these characters in the book are based off of characters that we kind of know and love from movies that we've seen. I guess you don't necessarily need the same character development because we kind of already have an idea who most of these people are. Yeah, and I think even if you don't know horror, we all have in the sort of pop culture collective unconscious this this knowledge of a final girl being the woman who survives a horror movie and and the idea of the summer camp killer or the Halloween killer or, you know, the prom night. And we, these sort of float around as tropes. And what I really wanted to do is is twist those tropes into something different. So when you meet these women, like you say, you feel like you know them all. Oh yeah, that's so-and-so, that's so-and-so. And by the end of the book, you realize that there's a lot more to them than you thought there was. Um, and that they're different from what you thought there was. And so, yeah, it was really nice to play with these characters where you start already having some solid ground between you and the reader. Yeah, I actually felt like you answered a question that I never knew that I needed to ask before. And that was what happened to these women at the end of these movies. I, I started to feel bad that I had never wondered that before, you know, because it's just right. they're really the movie ends and you're like, OK, movie's over. I'm going to I'm going to head home now. But there is a life to this person, theoretically. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. Um I think I saw Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors in 87 when it came out. And I remember in the middle of that movie, Heather Langenkamp, the final girl from Nightmare 1, shows up to do a group therapy session for the kids in this in Nightmare 3. And my brain exploded. I was like, oh my God, a character from one horror movie can show up and help the characters in another horror movie. I was like, and that just got me really thinking about these people having lives outside the movies and what those lives would be like and how those lives might be a little crummy. <laughs> yeah, because there's some films where the the main character or the person that survives continues on into a sequel or a trilogy, whatever. Yeah. But in some, they don't. Like you mentioned Nightmare. A lot of the people that survive at the end of Nightmare don't move on to the next film. Right. Or they move on and get killed. Immediately. And one of the, yeah, exactly. And one of the things I always thought was that must be so hard. If this is your life, if you have a, like, how do you know if you're a sequel or not? How do you know if you're in the threequel? Maybe you're in a franchise. Like you are always waiting for the other shoe to drop because you don't know. Like that must be an appalling way to go through life. All right. So I want to ask you about some of the characters here because I think, uh, well, maybe I should say this. Are all of the main characters... Uh, the final girls are they all based off of movie characters that we know? Yeah, to the for the most part. Okay, they're, mostly. They're, yeah, there was one. The, the one that I couldn't figure out was Lynette. I couldn't figure because her movie in the book is Sleigh Bells, right? No, her movie in the book is Silent Night, Deadly Night. Silent Night, Deadly Night. I'm sorry. Oh, no. oh in real life, in real life, yes. In the in the sorry, yes. In the world of the book, it's called Sleigh Bells. Okay, but in real life. In real life, so what happens in Silent Night, Deadly Night is Linnea Quigley, who is one of sort of the scream queens in the 80s, just gets murdered in the movie. And I thought, my God, what if she survived that? And it's like, I wanted Lynette to be this sort of side character who was considered disposable. Because one of the things that really frustrated me about horror movies, and especially slashers, is you'll look at the credits and people are like, people who die, they're like, Jeff ambulance driver like yeah. Jeff doesn't even get a last name or someone doesn't even get a name they're just a job description and it reminded me of how in real life we all know the name Jeffrey Dahmer we all know the name Ted Bundy but I can't name one of their victims mm. and there's this there's this way that we kind of turn 
killers into celebrities like Jason, Freddie, Michael from the movies. But who were their victims? Who were the final girls? Like we don't know them quite as well. And it was like this real cultural blind spot that I realized that I had with everyone. And that I really want to sort of stick my finger in that wound and wiggle it around. And it seemed like with Lynette, it was a good way in because in the world of her franchise, you know, she's a disposable character. That was and the only one I couldn't disposable. figure out. Yeah. And, yeah, and yeah, as yeah. you're saying that too, like there's there's a moment in the book, and I forget which character says it now, but it's coming to my brain here, where that conversation kind of takes place, where you yeah. know you there you're you go to the movies and you see these girls getting killed, but nobody feels bad about it, you know? Yeah, exactly. And it is very weird. Like I get it in terms of the mechanics of making a movie, but in real life, like if you're imagining these are real, no one's disposable. Those are people with families, mm. you know. I'd never put that perspective into my brain before until I read that in the book. And I started thinking about all because I've always enjoyed a good horror movie, a good a slasher film. Yeah, me too. Uh, I just blew through the whole Saw series again recently. And oh. I was like, but, <laughs> the and, whole thing? That's oh, a long watch. I know. Dude. And there's some that are just not worth it. But, <laughs> but there is a lot of that. But like, I started thinking about that. I, I watched all these films and, and never did I really say, oh man, I feel so bad for that guy. He's not that bad. Like, I didn't really, I, yeah. I, just, I just watched the movie and watched everybody get dismembered. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and once I started doing it, I had a hard time. I have a hard time now not doing it. Yeah. Like I, like I just watched slumber party massacre with some friends and uh, over the weekend and that movie's so great because it gives all those girls, you know, it's a female director, uh, uh, Rita Mae Brown, the famous feminist author, actually wrote the screenplay. And it gives, it makes sure it gives all those women kind of a life and a background and they relate to each other and they try to protect each other. And it's a really, it was really, it's a cheesy movie, but a great movie because it was almost heartwarming to see characters like this who weren't being treated as disposable sort of like victims. I finished reading your book the other day, right uh, around the same time that, um, I don't know if you have Netflix, but Fear Street Part 2 came out on sure. Netflix. And uh, I, I read those books religiously when I was younger. Uh, and even though the movies really have nothing to do with the books, it's still something that I wanted to check out. And I was watching it with that mindset of like, oh, man, I'm I'm really rooting for these characters now. Like, I don't want this person to get taken out. They seem like such a nice yeah. person. <laughs> No, exactly. And there's some movies that do it. Like Black Christmas is a movie I've always uh -huh. loved. And like Margot Kidder, man, you want to have a drink with Margot Kidder. And when she dies, you're just like, no, <laughs> I never got to have a beer with Margot. Like it's, yeah, there are movies that do it and you just feel so awful when the characters die. So how do we get here with you? Obviously, there's a very large interest. You've written other books that that uh, are in this genre. There was even one book you wrote that was all about the paperback horror movies of the <laughs> 70s and 80s. How, how, did, how did your interest in this come about? You know, I was a journalist for a long time, um, and I, I really always liked writing. And I was a journalist for a long time, and like in 2008, um, I don't know if you remember this, but like suddenly there were no more jobs in terms of cultural coverage. Cause I wrote for like, I wrote about like the Asian film industry for variety and I wrote movie reviews and book reviews and the jobs just disappeared in 2008. And there were people I knew who were writing for a byline. They weren't even getting paid. And I was like, so I have one marketable skill which is writing and that's no longer viable. So I'm gonna double down and do fiction. And it took me a long time. I think, I think 2016 or 2017, was the first year I made as much money as I did writing in like 2007 oh, as, wow. a, as a journalist. Um, and it's just been a long, slow process. But um, each, each book, you meet new readers, you meet new bookstores, you get out there, you know. And for me, horror was really like, 
I find horror not boring. Like science fiction, I like it, but it's all, I have a hard time relating sometimes. It's in the future. It's on another planet. I like the here and now. And horror is sort of the one genre that's mostly in the here and now, but it's got fun stuff in it, like werewolves. Like, you know, it's got that like extra special sauce on reality. And so I really kind of glommed onto that. No, I mean, I, I think it's great. And I like when I get into a situation where I've discovered you here on the Final Girl support group, but you've got multiple books that came out before. And now I'm excited to go devour your other works because people say such great things about them. And they were all amazing. <laughs> Every single one of those books and the people who said nice things about them. Um, well, it is, you know, in writing books, is it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Like, you, you know, I wrote this book called We Sold Our Souls, which is this heavy metal novel I wrote. And I was really, every book I write, I'm trying to figure out the answer to a question. It's a really long-winded, inefficient way to answer a question. And with that book, I was like, you know, when do you quit? Like I was in my, I'm in my forties and I was just like, when do you give up? Like, when do you just give up and go back to law school? When is this thing you wanted so badly just not happening? Cause I was doing okay. I was making a living, but I wasn't setting the world on fire. I wasn't saving up for retirement. You know, I didn't have health insurance. And so that book's about a woman and a sort of a washed up metal musician who's like, everyone keeps telling her to quit and she just won't. And it's, she really got me through some hard times writing that book is to be hanging out with this imaginary friend who, just her whole life was about not quitting, even when that was the rational thing to do. And that's sort of the trick to being an author. You just got to keep going. That's a trick with just about anything in media, especially yeah, exactly. like you mentioned about the jobs drying up. I mean, I, I can't even imagine being, you know, uh, a journalist right now in so many ways, because the, the places you would write newspaper writers, it's just there's so few and far between now. And they're so yeah. uh, set, you know, one person can write for the LA times, but that company owns 17 or whatever other newspapers and that articles go to all of them. And yeah. Yeah. It was really, you know, journalism's interesting because it managed to commit itself in with incredible persistence to an unworkable business model. I mean, the journalism, the print journalism business model has almost never been workable. And that's why I really have a lot of respect for like nonprofits like ProPublica, which it's a nonprofit supported journalism, you know, a group that actually augments local reporting. And I'm like, that works. That's something that can happen, you know, but like, yeah, it's, it was just such an unworkable model. And it's interesting to see podcasts right now. Cause you know, there's so many great ones out there and you're like, okay, is this sustainable? You know, like, is it, and it seems to be more sustainable than print journalism, I think, cause the overhead's a lot lower. What I always find funny, because I've been doing radio for the last 20 years, and and I've shifted into doing a podcast as well. It's kind of a little side project for me. But people, I think people assume now, because podcasting is such a you know flashy term, that if you're podcasting, it's like a job and you're making, I'm like, no, 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 there's no money here. Yeah, this is just, exactly. I enjoy reading books and talking to authors. So I'm going to do a podcast and see if we can promote some stuff and have a good time. <laughs> there's no, money no, exactly. Talking. And I actually did a podcast last year about vampires and sort of the history and all that. And dude, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. Like I, I eventually had to stop doing it. It just took so much time and work. It's like, like broadcasting is not for the weak hearted. <laughs> I actually just came across that. I'm going to check it out. Uh, when I was looking up uh, some info about you, I came across. Yeah, I also don't, don't judge my shoddy technical abilities. No, I never, <laughs> I never do because there's actually some fantastic podcasts that I listen to that if I'm listening to it with like my radio slash broadcasting ear, I'm like, what a piece of shit this is. But in real <laughs> life, I'm like, these guys are doing a great job. They don't know what they're doing. They're just having a good time and it's very entertaining. And that's all I care about. Yeah. <laughs>
Exactly. Uh, I also came across this piece of information that you used to work for the American Society for Psychical Research. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Psychical was just this 19th century term for psychic. They put the AL on the end to make it sound more sciencey. Okay. It, what I what I imagine that is, is what Bill Murray is doing at the beginning of Ghostbusters. Like that's what I imagine you did. Actually fascinating. So the ASPR, which has been around since like 1885, it's actually the place that Dan Aykroyd based the script for Ghostbusters. Oh, really? Um, yeah, he was, he's a member. He and his, his dad and, and his brother uh, are members um, and, and big proponents. And uh, yeah, so I just answered a job listing on Craigslist for a nonprofit looking for an office manager, you know, someone to, to take care of member needs and, and buy, you know, paper towels and answer the phone. And it was the ASPR. And I was there for about five years and it was an amazing education. Um, you know, my boss was an incredibly, incredibly smart woman. And she said to me, you know, she was like, listen, you're going to get a lot of calls from people who are going to tell you a lot of stuff. They're going to tell you they're seeing ghosts and they got psychic vampires and there's aliens and all this stuff. And she said, you know, do not validate what they're saying because you know, they could be having a mental health crisis. They could be messing with you. They could be crazy and they could be drinking. You don't know. And so you cannot validate anything they say. At the same time, do not invalidate anything they say because what do you know? You're an office manager. You don't know if there's life after death. Maybe they are seeing a ghost. And so that put me in a place where all I could do was kind of listen. And that turned out to be what a lot of people wanted. They wanted to tell their story about something that happened to them and not have that person judge them or try to figure it out or tell them what was going on. They just want to talk it through. And the one thing I was able to say to people was, you may be crazy, I don't know, but I am in a place surrounded by accounts of people who've had something similar happen to them. So what you're going through is a really common, very human experience. I mean, and also think about it. How many times have you heard from someone they've seen a ghost or gone in a haunted mm. place? Like, it's pretty common, you know, it's something we all do. And and then the second thing I could say to them is, is there's always like, you know, so I don't know if you're crazy, but just because you've had this experience, that isn't proof that you're crazy. And so and then the other thing is I I surround, we've published a journal for almost a hundred years. We have, we collect all these accounts. We have all this research and I haven't ever come across one instance of someone being harmed by a ghost. So if you're worried, it's going to hurt you it might, but I've never seen that in any of these accounts. And for the most part, people really just, they wanted to talk. They wanted to feel like they weren't crazy and weren't being judged. And they wanted to know they were safe. And, you know, I've seen a ghost and it was a really profound experience for me. And I know what it was. It was, it was a weird trick of the light. And I get that. But in the moment, it seemed like I was seeing a ghost. Sure. And I think for a lot of people, you know, it's an experience that really rocks their world. And some people get an enormous amount of comfort from it. Some people really work through some emotional stuff with a dead family member with it. It's it's a really profound experience and a very common one. And I find that, you know, being forced to just listen to that was really, because as you can tell, listening does not come easy to me talking about. <laughs> um, and so it was a really amazing five years that taught me an awful lot. Well, I'm angry that I saved that question for the end, but I'm also glad because we would have totally run out of time before we talked about your book. So I'm glad we got the book out earlier uh, in the conversation, Grady. But this really is fantastic. The Final Girl Support Group. Uh, I really enjoyed this read. And, and reading it, 
I guess, again, maybe because I had a mental image of who some of these characters were, I was reading it while imagining it as a movie. And I have to imagine that someone's looking to grab this thing. It's going to be a series over at HBO Max with um, Charlie's Theron producing and the machetes, Barbara and Andy directing the pilot and doing the um, development stuff for it. So I'm really psyched. Wow, that is super cool. Well, Grady, yeah, congratulations, man. Seriously, great work. I know you got a couple other things in the pipeline too, as far as TV and movies. So I'm just really excited to see all this stuff coming your way and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing more. Thanks, man. It was really nice talking to you, by the way. Hey, good to talk to you too. Good luck with everything. Thanks to Grady Hendrix for giving us some time. His book, The Final Girl Support Group, is available now and definitely worth the read. I loved it. Such a great book. And thank you to all of you for listening this week. I appreciate your time. Until next time, be well.